This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today, we have the July 25th, 1943 edition of CBS World News Today. It includes analysis and updates on the war from Algiers, London, New Delhi, Moscow, Honolulu, Washington, and New York. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And be sure to visit our website at brickpicklemedia.com slash podcast where you find links to past episodes and other information. So thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker. You'll find what you came for here, and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. World News Today, brought to you by Continental Radio and Television Corporation, makers of Admiral Radio, America's smart set. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas stations, as well as the leading news centers of our own country, CBS correspondents are waiting to bring you a complete report from the world's political and battlefronts. But first, here's Doug Edwards. The top news today, Allied air action. British and American planes have showered tons of bombs on enemy targets in Western Europe, in the Mediterranean, in the South Pacific, and in China. The RAF put on the biggest show with a record attack on Hamburg. Other Allied bombers flying the shuttle route from Britain to Africa blasted Italy's northwest coastal port of Leghorn. On land, the Sicilian campaign has reached its final stages with the capture of Trapani by the American 7th Army. And in Russia, the Soviet tide rolls on toward Orel. Now, Admiral Radio takes you direct to Algiers. John Daly reporting. Tonight, and it's already nighttime in this part of the world, the armies of the United Nations are massing for the final battle of Sicily. The Axis is holding a line some 70 miles long, running from below Catania on Sicily's east coast, inland for about 15 miles, and then arcing around Mount Etna to the northwest to Rigo Buto. From there, it turns north to enter the Tyrrhenian Sea on Sicily's north coast. The Germans hold more than 30 miles of it, from Catania to Rigo Buto. The Italians hold the rest, the 30-mile stretch northward to the Tyrrhenian Sea. In western Sicily, the American 7th Army has occupied Sapony, the last port of any consequence on the west coast, and has captured an additional 10,000 prisoners and a huge amount of booty, including 200 guns. The work of our American 7th Army has been magnificent. The brilliantly executed three-pronged attack which captured Palermo, Sicily's capital, last Thursday, split the Axis armies and forced them to the last stand on the Mount Etna line and the final great battle which is now underway. Beside me is Charles Court, photographer for Acme News Pictures, who has followed the Seventh Army since Invasion Day and was one of the first Americans to go into Palermo. What was the siege of Palermo like, Charlie? There wasn't really any siege. 
As we came up to the outskirts of the city, we were met by thousands of poor tattered peasants carrying white flags of surrender. And as we could see hundreds of white flags on the buildings lining Via Roma, running into Palermo, the people cheered and called us conquerors and liber liberators. And, and, and as they had in every village and town in Sicily, offered us land and fruit. We moved out of the suburbs and started for the city. A German manned 88 opened fire on a lead armored car. It hit the car, but nobody was hurt badly. And then came the only fight night saw. A couple of our self-propelled guns moved out and cleaned out that 88. And how they cleaned it out. A few minutes later, another 88 fired at us, and the boys cleaned them up. In all, we used from six to eight shells to clean out those guns in Castro Palermo. Did you mean the Italians didn't fight at all in the city? Yes. After the 88s had been wiped out, General Geoffrey Keyes, who was in command, went into Palermo in an armored car under a flight of truce, taken with him Italian General Molinari, who had been captured earlier. They went to the royal palace in search of the commander of the Palermo garrison. But like all good fascists, he had flown the coup. Another unit captured him later. General Keyes demanded that Molinari take responsibility for the unconditional surrender of the city. And he added, if it wasn't given, we'd slug it out. That's all there was to it. Well, what about the people of the city? I was in the jeep right behind General Keyes' car when he went to find the garrison commander. And even then, the people were forcing food and wine on us. One of them forced so hard and was so excited that an overripe melon landed right in General Keyes' lap. In the city, people danced in the streets, and one man waved a huge American flag. He brought back from a visit to America and asked everyone if they were from Brooklyn. Another guy was sh shouting, Welcome the Americans. They bring us liberty and food. Everywhere in Sicily, the people were hungry. One GI, said in Palermo, Pipes, we could take Italy with a case of pay rations. That's a little optimistic. But when we saw the defenses in Palermo and realized that if they had been manned, it would have been very tough going. It made sense. Well, why do you think they quit so easily? I figure it was partly hunger, but more important, they had been told by the fascists that we had no armor. When they saw our tanks, tank destroyers, armored cars, clogging the road for miles on the approaches to the city, they just quit. Well, you must have gotten some great pictures, Charlie. Uh, yes, I did. And the best part of it is, is that they're in the States now. I worked all last night with Captain Jack Smith of the Army Pictorial Service, who used to be a news photographer himself, and radio telephoto the pictures home. But did you lack subjects? No. Everybody in Palermo seemed to have relatives in Chicago or Brooklyn. And they all wanted to have their pictures taken so that their relatives could see them. Thanks, Charlie. We return you now to CBS in New York. More news in just a moment, but first, here's Warren Sweeney with a word from Admiral Radio. 3,000 ships, a tremendous air armada, countless men, mountains of supplies and equipment. That was the invasion force which landed on the shores of Sicily. A giant moving with the precision of clockwork, and on a schedule so rapid, time did not permit the careful handling of delicate radios. Radios used in the invasion had to be able to take it. The rough treatment, the water, the sand, yes and take it in such a way that signals would be heard despite the roar of guns and motors, the clatter of half-tracks and tanks, the hoarse shouts of men. Admiral had full confidence Army and Navy radios would come through with flying colors because in building such radios, tests were developed to duplicate actual battle conditions, and every radio Admiral produces for the armed services undergoes these tests, functions perfectly during and after them. Scientists and radio experts of the Army Signal Corps and Navy Communications, together with Admiral Engineers, have condensed years of research into the space of a few months in learning how such radios should be built. Their work has been little short of amazing. 
Today, America's armed forces have radios which do get the message through anytime, anywhere. Their work will have an important bearing upon the future, too. The Admiral you buy after the war will be better, more dependable than ever, because of what Admiral has learned in building radios that withstand the rough treatment and hazards of invasion. Now, here once again for Admiral Radio is Doug Edwards. Allied planes based in Britain are in full action again. Last night, the RAF made the heaviest raid of the war on Germany. For this news and other developments, Admiral Radio takes you to CBS London. Edward R. Murrow reporting. This is London. A few days ago, the Germans were predicting that their submarines would soon be at sea again, equipped with new technical devices. Last night, the Royal Air Force went to Hamburg, Germany's largest port and main center of their submarine building industry. The British bombers dropped more than 2,300 tons of bombs. It was the greatest weight of bombs ever dropped in any raid. Their losses were the smallest for any recent big-scale attack. Twelve bombers failed to return. Details of the raid have not yet come in, but preliminary reports indicate that results were good. And it's safe to assume that many of the submarines with their new technical devices will not put to sea. The bombs went down at the rate of 50 tons a minute. That means that as many tons of bombs hit Hamburg in 10 minutes as ever struck London in an all-night raid. The whole raid lasted only 50 minutes. And in that time, the weight of bombs was equal to five of the heaviest all-night raids ever carried out against this city. The raids here were bad enough. But last night's bombardment of Hamburg was something never before experienced by the people of any city. Yesterday's record raid by American bombers against Norwegian targets is still being discussed. Mr. Peter Maysfield, the air correspondent of the Sunday Times, who has in the past been somewhat critical of precision daylight bombing, writes about our bomber policy today. He has spent several weeks living and flying with our fortress crews, flying practice missions and on operations against the enemy. In his own words, he was greatly impressed. Mr. Maysfield has high praise for the accuracy of our bombing, the adequacy of defense against fighters, and the ability of the fortresses to evade anti-aircraft fire. He is lavish in his praise of the efficiency and enthusiasm of the crews and the way they got on with the men of the RAF. Mr. Maysfield concludes that a formation of about 100 fortresses can penetrate enemy territory for two or 300 miles, drop 250 tons of bombs on an individual target, such as a factory, blot it out completely without any but superficial damage to the surrounding areas. And now to CBS New Delhi and the report of Eric Severide.
They hope to see us renew this gun, he will, as the paper suggests, begin work fast for the house of office, the anniversary of his arrest last year. We regret that the report from New Delhi is not quite up to standard. However, we have received a cable report from Eric Severide in India, and he continues with his report in this manner. American officers are happy about the appointment of Auchinleck as commander-in-chief in India. A newcomer here can only say this about politics. The problem of India is a post-war problem. For the present, there will be no change. The newspapers here make headlines of Mr. Elmer Davis' statement in London that Americans are not thinking about India in political terms. It is just possible that one explanation for this, at least in the minds of non-Indian friends, is that in India, unlike all England, political censorship is imposed upon correspondence. That is Eric Severide's cable from New Delhi, India. In Russia... The Red Army continues its drive on the Central Front after beating the German offensive. And now for a report on the morale of the Russian soldier who has again turned back the enemy, Admiral Radio takes you direct to CBS Moscow. Bill Downs reporting. In the smoke of the summer's fighting on the Central Front, there has been a strong smell of the Battle of Stalingrad. The same men and many of the troops who defeated von Pollock on the banks of the Volga today are moving forward towards Hitler's fortress of Oyel. The Soviet High Command has found a winning combination in three generals directing the new Russian offensive. Army General Konstantin Rokoshevsky headed the Stalingrad offensive and presumably as chief of the Russian forces in the Oyel front. Aiding him are Generals Nikolai Vatkitin and Martyan Pekhat who also supported Rakhasovsky in the Volga fighting. We know very little about the personal life of these men, except that all of them are in their 40s, and that all of them are as tough as the most hardened infantrymen in the ranks. They are not best generals. Soldiers in the front line trenches potting away at Nazi infantrymen on the attack have been patted on the back during a battle. When they turn around, they find a general at their side having a look at the fight, sometimes taking up a rifle himself. There's another soldier who undoubtedly has played a big part in achieving the Russian successes down around Oriel and Kurt. He also was reported to have been at Stalingrad for a while. This soldier is Joseph Stalin. It's never been revealed just how much of a hand the Russian Supreme Commander-in-Chief takes in the actual battle. But we do know that Stalin has been on the Central Front during this fighting. His latest order of the day did not have the usual Kremlin address on it. And this is Bill Downs returning you now to CBS in New York. American flyers in China have given Jap Raiders another licking. For this news and a summary of developments on the home front, Admiral Radio takes you now to CBS Washington. Lee White reporting. The Navy has released no further news of the Aleutians or the South Pacific. An Army communique from Chungking, however, reports that on Friday, 160 Japanese bombers and fighters attempted unsuccessfully to bomb the two advance airdromes of General Chenault's 14th American Air Force. P-40s, greatly outnumbered, intercepted the enemy planes and forced most of them to jettison their bombs before reaching their targets. Those which reached their targets were unable to bomb our installations effectively. Ten Zero fighters and six Mitsubishi bombers were shot down. Twelve more fighters and seven more bombers were probably destroyed. One of our own planes was destroyed on the ground and several more were damaged. 
but all our pilots are reported safe. It was the enemy's biggest air raid ever carried out against American installations in China, and one of the least successful. Vice President Wallace has journeyed to Detroit to deliver a speech this afternoon to local civic and labor organizations. It will be broadcast nationally by radio at 4.30 o'clock. In it, the vice president will outline a program for, of mobilization for peace. The president himself is contemplating another fireside chat, the first in almost a year. The White House sources indicate that it will take the form of a general report on the progress of the war... It will also deal specifically with a new program to combat, to combat inflation here at home. Last week, the president said he had been working on a new plan to present to Congress when it reconvenes in September. He said it hadn't been worked out thoroughly yet, but hinted that it would involve the expenditure of money, though not in the form of subsidies. The best guess in Washington is that it will involve the outright government purchase of scarce foods and the resale of such foods to the public at a loss which, of course, will have to be made good in the form of taxes later on. That the administration is planning a drive to enlist public support for some such program is indicated by a new bulletin of the Office of War Information, which develops the thesis that failure to curb inflation during the last World War was largely responsible for the economic upheavals which followed. The OWI report is based on an independent study made by Wayne Taylor, Undersecretary of Commerce. I return you now to New York and Doug Edwards. Out in Pearl Harbor, Marine Lieutenant Sam Logan is convalescing after a personal experience with savage Japanese airmen. For his story of how the Japs tried to kill him after he parachuted from his plane, Admiral Radio takes you to CBS Honolulu, Webley Edwards reporting. Here's a story that'll knock the complacency out of you and maybe make you mad. First Lieutenant Samuel S. Logan, United States Marine Corps fighter pilot of Paola, Kansas, is here at Pearl Harbor convalescing. Will you tell us about it, Lieutenant? First, I'd like to say hello to my folks and to the folks of my friend, Lieutenant George, Yorman George of Baird, Texas. I was at Guadalcanal. We got word that a large force of Jap planes were coming down toward Russell Island. We had to scramble and took off. The weather was lousy and I got separated. It was clear over the Russell Islands, but I never did get joined up with the rest. Why did you run into the Jap planes? I heard the word passed that Japs were at 26,000. I climbed to 25,000 and saw three planes diving, so I nosed over and went after them. Then I saw it was a Warhawk being chased by two zeros. Then something hit me. I think it was a 20 millimeter from another Jap. It knocked off part of my tail and I had to bail out. How high were you? About 20,000. I dropped about 1,000 feet and pulled the cord. Then a Jap started making passes on me. I tried to spill the air out of my chute so that I would fall faster. I could see the burst coming out of the guns on his wings as he came at me, but he missed. What'd you do then? Nothing much I could do. The Jap went out about a half a mile and came in. The third time, it looked like he was deliberately trying to hit me. I jerked up my legs, but his propeller hit my right foot and cut it off. It also hit my left foot and took off the heel of my shoe and bruised the sole of my foot. Uh, how high were you at this time? About 15,000. This Jap Zero came at me again, but he missed me. I found out later in New Zealander... Squadron leader Mike Herrick in a P-40. He came up and helped me out. He took a pass at the Jap Zero and the Jap ran for it. Herrick went on in and reported my position. Well, it didn't seem long on the way down. It took about ten minutes, but it seemed like hours. I inflated my May West when I hit the water and also inflated my one-man life raft. I was about 20 miles from land toward New Georgia. I was pretty weak, but I stayed conscious, put on a tourniquet, and gave myself some morphine. I was worrying about sharks, but I didn't see any. 
Well, how were you rescued? After Herrick reported me, Colonel Clifford, a Marine flyer from Russell's, came out and picked me up in a duck. Well, you're the first Corsair pilot we've interviewed. How do you like them? They're the best airplane I've flown and very much superior to the Zero. I hope that when I get back to flying, I can fly Corsairs. You mean you want to fly in combat some more? Yes, I do. There are two English pilots with both legs off. Well, there you are, America. That's the kind of men who are fighting this war for you. How do you uh, feel about it? This is Webley Edwards at Pearl Harbor. I return you now to New York. Allied airmen are hitting the European continent from all sides. For a discussion of the problems this creates for the Germans, here is Columbia's military analyst, Major George Fielding Elliott. While the Allied armies close the Sicilian trap on the still-fighting remnants of the Axis forces on that island, Allied air power is striking hard at widely separated points on the outer perimeter of Germany's huge defensive area. Yesterday's dispatches told us about a powerful Allied air raid on the island of Crete, which guards the entrance to the Aegean Sea. Crete has been converted into a strong fortress by the Germans, who are not depending on Italians to hold this key position. They've got their own people in there, and they've got it very strongly fortified. Today we learn of an American raid on Norway, in which the naval base at Trondheim and an aluminum factory near Oslo were the targets. And there was a shuttle raid on the Italian seaport of Leghorn, near the great naval base of La Spezia. And finally, the huge 2,300-ton raid on Hamburg. Meanwhile, on the Russian front, the Germans are making desperate efforts to gain air superiority in the Orel sector and are said to have thrown in much of their air reserve for the purpose. The difficulties under which the German high command must labor to meet the conditions imposed upon them by these all-round air attacks can better be imagined than described. But I'll have a shot at it. In the first place, the Germans must not only retain a great part of their fighter force to protect the industrial areas of western Germany against our bombs, but they must also somehow contrive to increase their fighter strength in this part of the world because the scale of our attacks is rising very rapidly. Only after they've done this can they then allocate any air power for other purposes, especially fighters. Their bombers on the Russian front must undergo heavy losses because of insufficient fighter protection, while it is impossible to give German troops and supply depots adequate fighter cover against the Russian bombers. Yet failure in this respect might mean the loss of Orel, might conceivably at some future time mean the collapse of the whole front. Under such conditions, it's understandable that outposts like Norway have to suffer, and also that the Germans can't give proper air support to their garrison on Sicily, because if they did that, they'd have to send air forces in driblets to bases well within the reach of overwhelming Allied air power, which would mean they'd lose heavily without accomplishing anything. Meanwhile, the Luftwaffe must still find long-range fighters to protect their U-boats in the Bay of Biscay, others for the defense of Crete and other outposts, and something must be kept in hand in case of surprise. Add to this the fact that the Italian Air Force has just about folded up, and we begin to see the reason for the headaches from which the German high commanders suffered. That was Major George Fielding Elliott. And now once again, here is Warren Sweeney with a word from our sponsor. The post-war products of American industry will be far superior to anything we know today. These are promises which can be kept because science, driven by the necessity of meeting wartime needs, has advanced at a rate far beyond its normal speed. Admiral is turning out equipment for war now, which could not possibly have been built two years ago. Radio communications equipment, unaffected by heat, cold, humidity, clouds of dust and dirt. 
radios that endure the jolts and crashing of trucks and tanks. Other industries have advanced, too, many of them closely related to radio. Wood can be impregnated until it will neither scratch nor chip. New ways have been found for using metals. More durable glass is now being manufactured. Synthetic rubber and plastics are common, cheap, and practical. When Admiral builds a new radio for your home after the war, Admiral designers will take advantage of all advances made by science, those of allied industries, as well as those made by radio science itself. For Admiral is determined that your post-war radio will be the finest radio you ever owned, America's smart set. Do you want the cost of living to become higher? Whether it does or not is up to you and every other American. Today, the supply of most luxuries, as well as many necessities, is limited. If everybody with extra dollars to spend goes on a buying spree, prices will skyrocket just like at an auction sale. So buy only what you absolutely need and put your extra dollars into war bonds. Remember, the family that gets along on less now will have more later. More when all necessities and real luxuries are freely obtainable at reasonable prices. World News Today is brought to you each Sunday at this hour by Continental Radio and Television Corporation, makers of Admiral Radio, America's smart set. Be sure to listen again next Sunday when Admiral brings you World News Today by shortwave, direct from the leading news centers of the world. This is Warren Sweeney speaking for Admiral Radio. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. The WBBM Air Theater, Wrigley Building, Chicago.